Jonathan Edwards said that God gives us preachers particularly to promote love for Christ and joy in Him. That's what pastoral ministry is all about. That's what discipleship is all about. That should be the goal of every sermon, to promote love for Christ and joy in Him. That should be the goal of all of our ministries here at Grace, of any ministry, to promote love for Christ and joy in Him. And when that happens, guess what? You'll find yourself loving God and loving your neighbor. You see how that works? When you love Jesus and when you find your joy in Him, then you will want to love God and then you will want to love your neighbor. You will want to obey His commandments. To promote love for Jesus and joy in Him. That's our big idea today and that's what I want to do today. And that's what Paul was doing with his ministry among the Corinthian church. It's why he planted the church. It's why he wrote letters to this church. It's why he wanted to visit them, to promote love for Jesus and joy in him. And Paul will do that by imitating the mercy of Jesus. That's what we'll see today. Paul reflects the heart of of Jesus in his ministry with the Corinthians. He will show us that love for Christ and joy in him gets stirred up inside human hearts when sinners hear and believe just how merciful Jesus is to them. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to see Paul reflect the merciful heart of Jesus in this passage today. So look at verse 23. Hear the word of the merciful God that we serve. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Now, recall back in verse 15, we saw that Paul wanted to visit the Corinthians so that they could have a second experience of grace, so that they could rehearse the gospel together, talk about all that Jesus has done for them. But Paul changed his mind, as we've seen, and decided not to visit them. And then he tells them in verse 23 the whole reason why he didn't go visit them. It was to spare them. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that he wanted to spare them? What Paul means is that he didn't want to have to show up and crack the whip. He didn't want to have to do what is called church discipline. He wanted his visit to be full of joy, not pain, not drama. He wanted their joy to increase in God when he visited with them. Paul wanted the Corinthians to deal with the sin in their church body before he showed up. So his change of plans was motivated by a heart of mercy. 
So he wrote this tear-filled letter to them. It came before 2 Corinthians, but it came after 1 Corinthians. So you have 1 Corinthians being written, then this tear-filled letter that he wrote to them, and now 2 Corinthians. So in between those two letters, Paul wrote this letter and confronted the church on the sin that was happening in the church body. We'll talk next week about what that is. We really don't know just to tip you off in advance. But something was going on with an individual, and Paul wrote them and said, I want you to deal with all of this drama before I show up, so that when I show up, it can be a second experience of grace, and we can rejoice together in our God. But notice in verse 24 that Paul is very quick to say that he does not lord it over their faith. He he doesn't want the Corinthians to misunderstand him. He is not telling them that he has authority over every area of their life. He's not telling them that their every move is subject to his control or his leadership. See, some pastors in some churches are this way. Some pastors are very controlling and very manipulative, and they create church cultures where people walk on pins and needles, and everything in the congregation's life is subject to the pastors and to the elders. I've heard of churches who tell people who they can and can't marry, how they must parent their kids, how they should spend their money, even controlling aspects of intimacy in marriages. There's a word for those kinds of churches. Cult. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to misunderstand what he is saying here. He's not running a cult. The reason he didn't show up was because it would have been a painful experience with a lot of drama. So Paul took great pains to not cause great pain. He wanted their joy in God to increase with his visit, so he delayed his visit until they dealt with the problems in their church. And what we see here, Paul, is really what he will later call in chapter 10, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul's job as their founding pastor was to mediate the comfort of God to them. What we saw in Chapter 1, verse 4. He's the God of all comfort. That's Paul's job, to mediate the comfort of God to the Corinthians and not cause grief and not cause sadness. So Paul is simply imitating Jesus in his relationship with his church. He wants to be like Jesus. He wants to do ministry like Jesus. He wanted, he says, to spare them. Paul's merciful heart actually shines in this passage. He actually demonstrates the heart of Christ because he doesn't scowl at the Corinthians. He's gentle. He wanted to spare them. So he wrote them a tear-filled letter out of anguish of heart to correct them but his intent with the letter was not to harm them. It wasn't just to get a pound of flesh He didn't fly off the handle with them. He simply wrote to correct them in hopes that they would deal with the sin that was prevalent in the church body so that when he finally did show up, it would be a time of joy, of gospel refreshment, a second experience of grace. And so Paul doesn't want to bring the hammer down on them. 
He would if he had to. And he will tell them in chapter 10, if they don't deal with the super apostles, then he will show up and he will crack the whip. So he will do it if he has to, but he doesn't want to. He was being merciful and showing them that mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul is showing the heart of Christ to the Corinthians. So Paul's ministry, Paul's leadership is gospel-centered. It's mercy-centered. Just as Jesus came in his first advent to save people rather than to judge and condemn the world, so too Paul did not return immediately to Corinth in order to spare them. And so the way Paul deals with the Corinthian sin is how Jesus deals with us. There's mercy, not a swift hand of judgment. That's how Jesus is with us. And that is such good news. God is so good to us. We were just singing it. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. Do you believe it? He's merciful. We don't get what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve. He is patient with us. He offers amnesty now. His kindness leads rotten, rebellious sinners to repentance. As sinners, we often feel like God is out to get us, don't we? And he is out to get us, just not in the way that we think. He is out to get us so that he can shower us with his love. We often picture God as trigger happy, ready to strike us down. But for all the times that we fear judgment, how many times have we been ambushed by his mercy instead? How many times have we rolled around in the pig pen of sin and our father showers us instead With his grace. Listen, God doesn't scold us. I love that about him. Yes, it's true. We have all been spectacularly unfaithful. We have all turned our backs on God to pursue our beloved idols. And what does God do when we do that? He pursues us in the mess of our own making. He goes out looking for us. And when he finds us in the pig pen of our sin, drowning in our shame, abandoned by the very idols that we have placed our hope in, the ones that promised us pleasure but didn't deliver, there, in that mess, he actually calls us home. Come back home. It's okay. You can come home. Even when your heart is cold to him, Christian, even while you are running away from him, his loving heart still pursues you wherever you go. And so what kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? That kind of God. The one who pursues. The one who is merciful and spares us. When we run away from him, his loving heart still pursues us wherever we go. And that's who Paul is imitating right here by delaying his visit by wanting to spare the Corinthians. And the reason Paul does ministry like this 
is because he wants them to have joy in God. And he assumes that they want joy, that they're fighting for joy too, because he says, we work with you for your joy. That means, Christian, that you and I have a job to do, to fight for our own joy in Christ, to pray like our call to worship this morning from Psalm 43, to cry out to God and say, send out your light and truth. And let them lead me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And so we have a role to play in this. And God has a role to play in this. In fact, I read in Psalm 119 verse 32 this morning, I will run in the way of your commandments when you widen or expand or enlarge my heart. Now, there's something going on in the Hebrew there, this this phrase to widen. When you widen my heart, God, I'm going to run in the way of your commandments. This term in Hebrew, widen, occurs in the hifil stem or the causative stem. And so the psalmist is saying, when you cause my heart to widen, I will run in the way of your commandments. But you've got to widen my heart, Lord. You've got to do that work. That's humbling. That it takes God doing a work in your heart. It's all his grace. But you know what else I saw this morning is very interesting. That Hebrew word there to widen is the Hebrew word Rahav or Rahab. And so Rahab, the prostitute, the harlot in Joshua 2 who helped out and hid the Israelite spies, her name means to widen. What does a harlot, what does a prostitute do with their legs? Not to be crude, they widen them. Her name is Widen, Rahab. But God in his mercy and God in his grace would widen and expand her heart so that she would trust in Yahweh. Okay, all that Hebrew stuff was for free, no charge there. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So Paul's saying, everything that I do for you guys is so that your joy would increase and so that you would stand firm in faith, believing God's promises. And that should be the goal of every pastor, of every elder. Understand this, Grace, the elders and the pastors here at Grace do their best to follow Paul as he follows Jesus here. We work with you for your joy. We want you to stand firm in your faith, to stand firm in the gospel, to stand firm in the promises of God. That is our goal as your shepherds, to promote love for Jesus and joy in him. We don't want to cause you pain. Any decision that we make, we don't want to cause your pain. Please understand that that right there is behind every decision that we ever make. It's to promote love for Jesus and joy in him. We have abundant love for you, Grace. 
We want to see you stand firm in faith. Your elders, your pastors, your ministry staff, we love you, we care for you, and we hope you feel that in your heart. Not just know it, we want you to feel it. We want you to love Jesus and have your joy in him spread. Like Paul, we work with you for your joy. But what kind of joy is Paul talking about here that he's working for? What kind of joy are the elders and pastoral staff working for? What what is joy? I like what John Piper says. He says, Christian joy is a feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and the world. So joy is this feeling that we have deep down inside of our soul, deep down inside of our spirit. It's produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us, as he opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. It's God working in our hearts, causing it to happen, doing that work like the psalmist says in Psalm 119.32. You cause, you widen my heart, and then I will run in the way of your commandments. That's what was driving everything that Paul did for the Corinthians. He wanted them to experience a feeling in their souls because the Holy Spirit caused them to see the beauty of Christ. And so he didn't visit them because he didn't want to cause them pain. So in lieu of another painful visit, Paul wrote this tear-filled letter with anguish, tears, writing to them so that they would repent and turn to God. And then when Paul visited them again, there would be joy on both of their parts. Everything that Paul does for this church is to promote love for Jesus and joy in him. Now let's move on to chapter 2. Believe it or not, we made it to chapter 2. We finally made it to chapter 2. Notice as we begin chapter 2, notice the words pain and painful and contrast them with the words glad, rejoice, joy, and abundant love. So chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul didn't visit the Corinthians and instead sent them a letter calling them to repentance because he wanted them to experience joy together when he arrived. He wanted to experience mutual joy, that my joy would be your joy, that you would make me glad. 
that we would get together and relish in the beauty of Christ. And that's what church should be every Sunday morning, every week, that we get together and we relish in the beauty of Christ. And then we look around at one another and we say, I can't believe that God loves us. I can't believe he saved people like us. I can't believe he's committed to people like us who are spectacularly unfaithful to him. That should be church, marveling at the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us. That's what Paul wanted when he showed up. So he writes this letter with many tears, grieved him from a heart full of anguish. His abundant love, he says, caused him to write this letter, hoping they would obey his directions and deal with the sin in their church family. He loved them enough to call out the sin present in the church body and to ask them to deal with it. So what Paul is doing here, he's actually showing us the heart of Jesus. He shows us that Jesus is not out to get us. He's not out to cause us misery. He's not out to cause us pain. Jesus longs for us to experience his joy, to know his heart for us. And where do we experience his heart? Where do we see the heart of God? Where does God kind of pull back the the cavity of his chest and say, this is what I am like? Where do we see it? One of those places is seeing the gospel in God's word, in the Bible. As John Piper says, to quote him again, when Satan huffs and puffs and tries to blow out the flame of your joy, you have an endless supply of kindling in the word of God. Hearing the word of the cross and preaching it to ourselves is the central strategy for sinners in the fight for joy. Nothing is more foundational for the joy of undeserving people than the cross of Christ. Therefore, in the battle for joy, we must take this truth and preach it to ourselves. The main strategy for joy in Jesus Standing firm in faith is preaching the gospel to our own hearts. The battle for joy is preaching the cross to our own hearts. That's how joy gets unleashed in your life and how joy gets unleashed in a church family. Listen, you cannot program this kind of joy. It only comes from seeing and hearing Christ crucified for sinners. It only comes from seeing the beauty of Jesus and believing that he really is better. No church can program this kind of joy. Coming up this week, Thursday evening, 6.30 p.m., joy class. You can't program joy. You cannot manufacture it. It is a gift from God that interrupts our self-centered worlds, that invades our idol worship as we see the beauty of Jesus again. It's a feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as we see the beauty of Christ again and again and again. And we need to see it again and again and again because we are that fickle. You just can't program joy, Grace. You can't manufacture it. We don't put it in our our, uh, bulletin on Sunday 
It's not a part of our service. Call to worship, song one, song two, New City Catechism, song three, joy, song four. We don't put it in there because you can't manufacture it. You can't plan it. You can't program it. It comes from seeing the beauty of Jesus. Joy comes from hearing the gospel. Being with Jesus stirs great joy. Reading his word stirs great joy. That's why the psalmist said, when you widen my heart, I'm going to run. I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to mosey. I'm going to run in the way of your commandments. Reading his word stirs great joy in our hearts. So when Satan huffs and puffs and tries to blow out the flame of your joy, you have an endless supply of kindling in the word of God. Don't neglect your Bible. Listen, it's 2020 for crying out loud. Really? It's 2020. You're going to neglect your Bible in 2020? Who wants to do that? And haven't we all to some degree? I don't want to neglect my Bible in the rest of 2020. I'm going to need more of my Bible as 2020 continues to roll out. And the first week of November, I know I'm going to need the Bible. Listen, don't neglect your Bible. Be amazed that you have the Bible. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you were just flat out amazed that you have the Bible, that you have a copy of God's word to you in your own language? Because not everybody does. When's the last time you were awestruck that you have probably not just one copy, but many copies of God's word? Be amazed that God speaks to you through his word. Get up in the morning and hold this book in your hand or get on your iPhone and just weep for joy that God speaks to you. He actually talks to you, to you, from his very heart right here in the Bible. Maybe you've been neglecting your Bible so far. Maybe for the last few weeks or so you've been neglecting your Bible. Maybe all year, I don't know. Maybe you haven't been reading it at all. You know what? You can start over today. If you've been neglecting the Bible, Jesus isn't condemning you this morning for that. He's not shaming you right now because you haven't been reading your Bible. He's simply welcoming you back. He's ready to go again at this relationship. So he says to you today, come on home. You know what? Let's just start over. Let's just start over right now. Let me show you my heart. Let me show you what I'm like from my word. So let's just go at it again, shall we? Let me give you some good news right now. You can start over today, right now, a fresh start. Doesn't that sound good? Just a fresh start today, forgetting what lies behind you can experience gospel joy today, right now, right here. You just open God's word and you expect that the same spirit who inspired the scriptures will illumine your mind and widen your heart as you read it. Ask and expect the Holy Spirit to cause you to see the beauty of Christ. And he will. 
Listen, the Holy Spirit loves to take the word of God and show weak, spectacularly unfaithful sinners the beauty of Christ. He loves to do that. So what are you waiting for? That's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. He's giving the Corinthians an endless supply of kindling to fuel their joy. Thirteen chapters full in this letter, to spark their joy in Christ so that they can stand firm in their faith. And Paul's actions in delaying his visit to Corinth show us the mercy of Christ, that mercy always meets us at the places of our messiness, at the places of our failures. His mercy shows up and doesn't give us what we deserve. I love that about Jesus. He does not give Benji Magnus what he deserves. He doesn't. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Ralph Davis says this, Yahweh hasn't changed and he does not hesitate to come barging after you right into the middle of your idolatries. He'll throw roadblocks in your path and sometimes send reasonably obnoxious servants to you as well. But it's good news that he'll do most anything to pry you loose from your golden calves. His mercy makes waves before his judgment arrives. God sent Paul, a reasonably obnoxious servant, to the Corinthians And Paul sent this tear-filled letter to them. Why? To help pry them loose from their golden calves, their darling sins, their beloved idols. He wrote to help them deal with sin in the church body so that mercy would make waves before judgment showed up. Please understand... God would rather forgive us. God would rather bless us. He's generous with his mercy. He's rich with his mercy. He's not stingy at all. He's loaded with mercy. You don't have to twist his arm behind his back and make him cry, uncle. Okay, uncle, uncle, you can have mercy. No, Jesus is rich with mercy. He's not stingy. He has been merciful to you your whole life. He was merciful to you this past week. And he's waiting for you to cry uncle to his mercy. Jesus prefers dispensing mercy, not judgment. That's his knee-jerk reaction, to show mercy. But if we refuse him, He will discipline us. He would rather save us, bless us. He would rather bless our socks off. But he will discipline his children, if need be, because he loves us. He would rather, he would prefer that his mercy would make waves in our lives before he shows up to discipline us. Listen, God is not going to sit back drinking a pina colada, and endorse our stupidity, endorse our rebellion, endorse our sin. He will not endorse sin. He just won't. And I love that about Jesus. 
He will not sit back and endorse our sin or our stupidity. He comes to save us from our stupidity, to save us from our sin. And if we are dumb enough to chase after other gods and dumb enough to stiff arm his mercy, he will not sit back and look the other way. God loves us enough to warn us. He loves us enough to make waves of mercy start showing up in our life before his discipline comes. And that's what Paul's tear-filled letter was. It was a warning to this church. It was tender correction. It was waves of mercy coming at them to get them to repent and to deal with sin. And so Paul is just imitating Jesus here. It's tender correction. Listen, Jesus specializes in tender correction, not scowling correction, not slamming doors, hitting walls, correction, out of control, tender correction. That was Paul's tear-filled letter written out of anguish of heart, out of abundant love. Jesus specializes in tender correction with us, and perhaps he's tenderly speaking to you today about some idol some beloved idol of yours, some golden calf, some darling sin of yours, and you know it's time to part with that. Is there some darling sin of yours that you need to put to death, to kill, part ways with, to murder? Don't just stab it, kill it. Has Jesus been making waves in your life trying to get your attention. He loves us enough to tenderly correct and discipline us. And isn't that what you want in God? Don't you want a God who doesn't leave you to yourself? Because you know what it's like those times when you are left to yourself for a season and you just end up sick and emaciated and weak and you just want to come back home. You know, aren't you glad God doesn't leave you there? He might let you wander there, but aren't you glad that he comes and finds you in the far country? Don't you want a God who doesn't support your stupidity? I do, because I can be really stupid sometimes. And that's why Paul sent this letter. He was imitating Jesus. He wanted waves of mercy to land on their shores, to repent and to deal with the sin in their church body. And as we'll see next week, they responded appropriately to Paul's tear-filled letter. Okay, let's close with something that Dane Ortland said. I think it will help us to promote love for Jesus and joy in Him. And that's exactly why God gave us preachers, right? To promote love for Christ and joy in Him. Isn't that what you're looking for in a sermon? You want a preacher to promote love for Jesus and joy in Him. That's what pastoral ministry is all about. God gives us preachers not to tell us how cool they are. He doesn't give us celebrity pastors who make ministry about them. He gives us preachers to remind us of the merciful heart of Jesus and to remind us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, here's how Dane Ortland describes the merciful heart of Jesus, and I hope it promotes love for Jesus and joining him. He says this, Perhaps you have difficulty receiving the rich mercy of God in Christ, not because of what others have done to you, but because of what you've done to torpedo your life, 
maybe through one big stupid decision or maybe through 10,000 little ones. You have squandered his mercy and you know it. To you, I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. Whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. Let me read that again. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make Jesus hug you the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, floodlight, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit, Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Doesn't that quote make you love Jesus? Doesn't it stir joy In your heart, wow, he is as good as he says he is. And he's better than what our beloved idols and golden calves and darling sins try to offer us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your merciful heart. Thank you that you're not intimidated by our mess. You don't feel overwhelmed when you meet us at the places of our sin and rebellion and stupidity. You show up tenderly and you help us to pry loose our tight-fisted fingers from our golden calves. And we see your beauty and we fall at your feet in repentance. And in your kindness you say, Let's start over, shall we? Let's go home. And you lead us home. You are so good to us, so merciful. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to repent often. And help us to love you more and to find our joy in you. For your glory, in your name we pray. Amen.